Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Mark Boris and this is Straight Talk. You know, I was a few years deep in a relationship with someone that I found out was a really bad person, did some really bad things that I won't ever talk about. Even come for, on, even for legal, no, for legal reasons. They forged an unlikely friendship after looking for love on a reality dating show. Bachelor's a bit of an unusual show for me. What sort of idiot falls in love on a TV show? Laura, I love you. I'm so ready for you to break my heart. <laughs> I, I worked COVID in emergency. I had a degree in medical radiation science, so I worked in hospitals all over the world. Worked the whole of COVID because yeah. we were short. The hospital staff needed people. Now life uncut. So I remember we released the first episode, forgot about it. The next day I got a message saying congrats on number one. And I was like, number one what? They're like, you're number one in the country. And we were like, what? You run a successful jewellery business called Tony Mate. You've got kids, you've got to manage relationships, and then you're doing the podcast and the radio. I mean, how do you do all this stuff? Yeah, I know. Well, that's a really unrealistic expectation for mums. Matt does 80% of the parenting and I'm doing 20%. I wasn't just ready to love, I think I was ready to be loved. What do you mean by love? What's that mean? You're really going to get something deep out of me here, I think. Um... Brittany Hockley and Laura Byrne, welcome to Straight Talk. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having us. I'm so excited to be here, actually. Do you want to know why? Multiple reasons. But um, first off the bat, not many people actually ever want to talk to us, do they? Serious? <laughs> I mean, it's usually because we're the ones doing all the talking on our own platforms. People like we've heard enough from them. Yeah. So it's nice to have someone new to be on the other side. Yeah, well, I'm really interested to talk to you guys. Uh, I want to go back and just understand what were you doing before you went on the TV show and why did you go on the TV show? And I'm going to start with you. Okay. Maybe. What was I doing before? I was a medical, I have a degree in medical radiation science, so I worked in hospitals all over the world in um, emergency departments and operating theatres. What does that mean? You're the person who does the ultrasound or something like that? Ultrasound, MRI, CT scans, a lot of the operations. um, A lot of operations people don't know, but they can't be done without being guided by people like me. Yeah. Um, So you're the person when I walk in there and uh, down to St Vincent down the road and they say, just leave your underwear on. And uh, put that gown tight. tight put That's the, exactly put the me. Yeah. You know what? You just, like, when you know, I come in, they just say, "Can you lay it on? Are you warm enough?" Uh, <laughs> and you pull the sheet up, and then you then then you put a pair of headphones on me, and you lock my head in the thing so I can't move. A, You're yeah. talking about an MRI. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I've had plenty on my brain, and uh, and then you send me in this machine. I feel like I've been uh, I've been buried alive. Is that you? That's me. And yeah. you go into the machine. You, you say, like... "Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Are you all right in yeah. there, Mark? Are you having a panic attack? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that Give is." Me a <laughs> That's me to an extent, but I mainly did emergency work. Um, I like the trauma hospitals and the trauma work. I want to be the one resuscitating someone. I want to be the one 
that uh, it sounds bad, but the more gruesome for me, the more interested I was um, because you, your brain works so fast and you don't get time to think about something when someone's bleeding out in front of you because quite often people don't realise that we're almost the first port of call when you come into a hospital. If you come in, you've been in a car crash or you're unwell or you've got a brain break, a brain bleed, people don't know what's wrong with you yet. So we're the first port, port of call. So I really loved that. Um, I love that lifestyle and I did that for about 12 years, but then I had this really creative side too. So in my 20s, I, I went to acting school and I did years of acting um, and I did that all over the world too, over in Scotland, the Royal Conservatory of Scotland. I just had this um, a real battle for wanting to do good for the world and wanting to help and use my brain and then also wanting to to use this passion I had for the arts and entertainment. I've always wanted to entertain. Um, and then I went on this round the world three-year trip. So I, I quit one day because I'd had a really bad day in emergency. And like I, a gap year, but for three years. <laughs> well, I just didn't come back. Yeah, I was 27. So twenty. this is what brings me to The Bachelor. So at 27, I left and I did about 60 countries over three years with my sister. Um, who was also a radiographer. We worked together. We're best friends. So we travelled, yeah, nonstop for three years. And then when I came back, I was 30. And I'd always said if I was th- if I came back from this trip and I, if I've dated in 60 countries, I've dated in every country, every colour, <laughs> race, religion, occupation, height, you name it, I've dated it. I tried. I to- that, a little bit later I need to know what you learned from that, but go on. Yeah, so I um, I really put my feelers out there to find my penguin and I, it, I just said if I come back from three years of travel and I'm 30 and I'm single, I will apply for The Bachelor. And never did I think that would happen and it did and I came back from that trip and I was so bored. I was like this can't be my life now. Like once you've had this taste of adventure in the world, and then you come back and you're doing a nine to five. I couldn't go back to a normal life. I was like, I need something else to propel me forward still. And so that's, that's how I ended up on The Bachelor. Well, and I find it quite intriguing um, because a, a radiographer's like science-based job. Mm. Um, everything is convergent thinking style in that, uh, you know, one plus one equals two. Mm. Um, you know, you, you, you get all various parameters and that leads you to a decision that you then hand on to the doctor or whatever. Mm. Um, that's a convergent way of thinking. Then, then you're also telling me though you you enjoyed the divergent style of thinking that is more creative. Mm. Most people are strong on one or the other and have a preference for, for one or the other. It's interesting that you you seem to want to flip between the two. Yeah, I did um, because I got different things from both of them. Uh, uh, they were both – I was filling my cup with both. The creativity side – I always wanted to be an actor or a presenter or in TV and entertainment, but uh, I was very much encouraged by my family, by my dad to, you know, I could do whatever I wanted Mm, in life. You know, possum, you can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want, but (laughs) I prefer you to put yourself in a position where you don't need a man, you're independent, you look after yourself um, and then go chase your dreams if, you know, if that's what, you still feel after that time. So I was very much encouraged to get a degree and put myself in a position. Dad's number one rule for life was make sure you look after yourself and you don't ever have to rely on anyone else. So that's sort of why I, I went down that medical route first and then I came back to the creativity after. And Laura? 
I was like, where do I start? Oh, okay. So I, um, I had a very traditional sort of like route through university, um, raised by my mom, single mom, three kids. And my mom was really creative, like incredibly creative. She would make leotards and stained glass and jewelry. And she was a jeweler by trade, but she became a school teacher. And, um, I had always, since I was about 15 years old, been obsessed with jewelry making and I would have little stores at the front of the house and I would go to the markets and I would sell things that I'd made from the time I was about seven with my mum who would sell her works on the weekend. But she was also a school teacher because she had to put food on the table. So I guess I grew up thinking I needed a very traditional job as well. And I went into graphic design and marketing and that was my that was kind of my, that was my stability. And then I was still doing jewelry on the side and I was selling it to my friends and selling it at Bondi markets. And, um, I had a, a quite a big thing go wrong at work this one day, which forced me to quit. Um, I'd sent an ad campaign to print. Uh, it was a Australia wide second, third page of every newspaper across Australia, a huge ad campaign that cost the company hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I put the wrong phone number. Oh my God. <laughs> um, it was like, call now, book now, completely wrong phone number. And um, <laughs> it was kind of the real kick up the ass that I needed that made me realize how much I wasn't taking my job seriously. And I thought, okay, I'm going to try this thing, this jewelry thing that I've got going on. Um, and if it all goes terribly, then I'll just go back and get a job that I hate. That can be my life. So I quit my job and I started doing jewelry full time. And then that led to me opening a shop in Westfields. I had a, a retail store there. And I was also trying to juggle this building of my business and trying to create a lifestyle of I mean, I was working every day in the shop and also going home at nighttime and making jewellery. And um, I just had a mess of relationships at that time as well. So I was in my 20s and everything was just a chaos. And um, I, the way that I ended up getting on The Bachelor was I'd just come off the back of another monumentally failed relationship where um, my housemates were like, just, you know what, you just need to have some fun. And so they were the ones who actually signed me up for the show. And it was all this big joke at the start. So I, I did it thinking this would be a great way to get back at my ex-boyfriend. Um, did uh, not. For him to see me smoking hot on TV. I was like, making out the how guy. can I really make him hurt? I'm going to sign up for a reality TV show. Never thought I'd get in. But then the kind of the process happened. Um, and I got down to the like the final I'd gotten selected to go on the show. Um, and I thought, you know what, I'll just put everything on hold for a little while. And I, I had a lot of back and forth. I actually said no to doing the show. Um, this is going to sound so woo woo, but I had, it was the night before we were supposed to go in. I'd already missed my call time. So I, I was supposed to go, um, and meet like in a, sorry, this probably sounds confusing, but I'll set this up a bit better. We were supposed to go and meet, um, and had a secret pickup location. A bus was coming to collect all the girls, uh, at 3 PM in Alexandria. And I totally missed it. And I called production. I said, I don't want to do the show anymore. And they tried to talk me out of it. And I was like, look, I'm really sad. I don't have any interest in doing the show. And also the risk of, I felt like there was a big risk about being portrayed badly on the show that might then impact my business because my identity was really tied to my jewelry business that I'd started to create and build. Um, so I had a bit of a last minute freak out. Anyway, I went to bed that night um, and all the girls were already in the, in the experiment, in the show. And I had a dream that I had <laughs> to do it. Serious? Had a dream. You had a dream. Had a dream. 3 a.m. in the morning. Like your vision. Yeah. I, had, I just had a dream that I really regretted not doing it. I don't know what it was, but I had this dream. I woke up at 3 in the morning and I called my sister and I was like, 
come over, help me pack my bags. I have to be at this hotel. So I rocked up at the hotel and I was like, will you still have me? Anyway. <laughs> like um, when you rock up to all your ex-boyfriends out. Totally. <laughs> Very long story short, I met my husband on that show. We now have two children together and my life has changed forever. So I do not believe in that stuff. It's not like I had this massive turning point in my life where I was like, oh, I'm so spiritual now. But there was something about that moment where I, I felt like it was going to be a really huge missed opportunity. So, yeah, and I probably did also make my ex-boyfriend jealous. So I think I really won that one. Tick, tick, tick. Well, you married someone too, which is pretty yeah, good. Totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 mean I, I've had some experience in the reality sort of shows mm. in, in terms of, you know, being a host, but never on the other side of it. And... One of the things I know is that the casting agents who cast the people like yourself, so they have a, they have a, they start broad, like might have a three or 4,000 people could, could apply, which is what you guys did. Then they just keep whittling down. But what they got in their mind is they're looking for a certain type mm-hmm. of person. Um, so, or persons or group. And within the group, they want heroes and they want uh, bad guys or mm-hmm. bad girls. And you've got to always be careful you don't get, you could get cast mm. as the wrong person. Did you ever know that or did you, or did you just something you discovered during the process when you, when you actually were on the show? Well, I think The Bachelor is also a little bit different in that they cast, so they, obviously they cast the people who are going to be the heroes, but they cast villains and they also cast people who they know are compatible with whoever is the bachelor. So there's three types of people. There's people who are lovely that the Australian like the Australian public are going to love. Yeah, we want her to win. Behind, but that they know aren't necessarily compatible with him, but that Australia will adore them. And then they cast people who from all the psychological testing, they think that is genuinely a fantastic romantic match. And then they cast crazies. And that's the three. And you don't know where you sit on but that. But did you know that before you put your hand up to go on the show? No, I kind of figured it out after. I figured it out halfway through the actual filming process. But I think at the time, I personally, once I actually got into the show and realised this kind of um, demographic that they were casting in there, I was like, Either he really likes me and this is going well or I have terrible self-awareness and I'm the crazy because <laughs> the stories I was telling in my casting, the hot mess of like my backstory of my relationships, I think that that would have come across as like, I don't know whether this girl is particularly dateable or not. So I wasn't sure where I sat and I had a lot of apprehension throughout the whole of our experience on The Bachelor. And what about you, Brittany? Did I, you... Uh, no, I had no She's idea. less crazy than me. <laughs> I had to um, buy a TV to watch myself on the show. So like I, I I still to this day don't really watch reality TV. But you hadn't watched the you hadn't watched the bachelor before that? I had watched it. Yeah. My friends and I my I actually I think I got accepted on the second season of The Bachelor ever because my fr- similar similarly to Laura, my friends put me in the the mix. So that's what happens. The friends put you up. Yeah, and I oh, didn't want absolutely. to do it. This was before I went overseas for this three years. Um, and I I went. They drove me to the audition. I didn't want to do it, and I ended up pulling out at the last minute, saying I just want to go travel. Like this isn't my life. Um, and I don't know if that's really made aware. I don't know a lot of people know that that I I didn't want to do it at that time. Um, and that was part of the reason that I, I promised them if I came back three years later, I'll, I'll apply. Um, so I didn't know a lot about reality TV at all, but I figured it out pretty quickly within, I'd like to think I'm a smart enough cookie and I'm, I'm very, uh, I, I'm pretty self-aware. I like to think. And I, at this point I'd had a lot of life experience. I was one of the oldest people. I was only 30 when I went on, but I was one of the oldest people on the show. 
and I think probably I had the most life experience and I could just see things going on that right. and I could tell that no one else knew what was and I was like how how do you guys not know what they're setting you up for Fear right now totally <laughs> for me and I and they hated that because I was I was too normal and I was too boring but I feel like I was cast for two reasons. I think I was one of the three people they, they always say, the producers said, you know, we usually cast three people. We think you're actually going to match and have the successful love story. I think I was one of those people. I was on the honey badger season and we just had far too much in common for me to have not been cast in that sense. We were born in the same hospital three days apart. Um, we grew up in the same town with our favorite countries that we traveled to were the same, our favorite experiences. We wanted the same things. And they know that when they're doing the interviews to cast you, they know that. Um, so I think pretty much straight away, I knew that I was supposed to be a contender, whether he felt that was a different question, but I knew why I was there. And, and what did you, I mean, like, what do you learn? You said yourself where, but what do you reckon you learned about yourself as a result of doing the show? Like what did, did, do you have any sort of self-realizations in that show? <laughs> I think I realized that I wanted to be in a relationship again, which seems crazy, but um, I'd been single for the best part of 10 years. I almost married someone with a double life. He was a sociopath that was, he was marrying someone else at the same time. He was buying the same houses at the same time. He, he set up these two lives identically Whoa. with me and another woman. It was crazy. Um, and off the back of that, I just, you know, I just said, I'm never dating again. And I, I had a lot, didn't have a lot of confidence um, at all. And just going on that show, it, it gives you a thick skin. That's for sure. I realized that I can actually deal with a lot of things, but I also realized that I was ready. It sounds so, it makes me feel vomitous to say it, but I felt like I was like, Oh cool. I actually do want to love someone again. Cause it, it had been so long, it'd be like a decade. And I was like, I started to think I was a sociopath. I had no feelings. Didn't feel anything. Didn't cry. Wasn't happy. I was just like cruising through life, oh, plateauing is what I thought. Yeah, flatlining. Um, flatlining. I just, I just didn't feel anything anymore, and I didn't know what it was, and um, I, I sort of realized I wasn't a sociopath in that time. Well, well, that's, <laughs> a good, well that's a pretty good outcome. That's good self awareness of yourself. So I'm like, cool. I'm pretty normal. <laughs> Deep, what about you? I think for me, I learned heaps from the experience. I um, I have. I have always, I feel like I've been quite hard in terms of um, I'm very determined. I work really hard. Um, I'm always the sort of person, especially in my 20s, who even when I wasn't fine, I'd be like, I'm fine. I don't cry. I'm not going to ask for help. Um, and I really went into The Bachelor with that mentality. I was there were a lot of experiences in that show, especially because I was falling in love with a guy on a TV show, which just felt so stupid. I felt so stupid. I was like, what sort of idiot falls in love on a TV show? I thought I'd come in here for a few weeks, have some fun. I thought I'd be home in two weeks. Like I didn't even tell my mum I was doing the show because I genuinely thought I'd be home within two weeks. Um, and here I am falling in love with a camera crew around me. So I was very closed off, especially to the producers who were trying to get emotions out of yeah. me. And I felt like they were trying to trick me. I was like, I see what's going on here. But now in retrospect and with um, the beauty of watching the show and hindsight, what I understand they were trying to do is they were trying to get vulnerability out of me. They were trying to show the Australian public that I'm not some hard ass chick who's just fine and putting it all on for the cameras. And um, I think I really learned that vulnerability isn't something that people see as a weakness. I always saw it as being really pathetic. Um, but I learned that it's not pathetic at all to be, to, to show that you're upset about something or to show that you care about something to people, because 
when you're the person who always shows up with a front of being fine, nobody ever helps you. Everyone always thinks that you've got, you, you don't need the help, you know, even though sometimes you could be in a really dark place in life or you could be really struggling. Um, and so for me, I then, I then noticed that all the girls who were able to articulate their feelings or were able to show that side of themselves. They're way more loved. <laughs> yeah, the, the public gets behind that. The public, you know, and not just the public, I don't mean to use it as a tool to try and garner likes or favour, but just it was really something that I could apply to my own life. You know, I, I really learned that it's okay to show people when you're not okay. Um, and that experience, as much as I had an amazing time and got a husband out of it and so many wonderful things, it was really hard. It's really hard to be in an environment where you feel like you love someone, but you've been pitted against all these other women and people are comparing you physically saying that you're not pretty enough for them or this person's prettier. It really took a massive hit to my self-esteem after the show and to my self-worth. So I learned that it was okay to express those feelings and that I've really, that's really changed me. And it's also impacted the way I raise my kids as well. They're, they're two really interesting um, realizations. I mean, you learned about yourself mm. in terms of self-awareness that you're ready to love again mm. it, it, and to be loved to it, I mm. guess, is yeah. that's something you learned and you learned about the importance of expressing your vulnerability. Totally. Can I just dig into it a little bit? Mm. Like, uh, oh, if you don't mind. Dig, go dig. away. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. Get um, your shovel out. Because they're, they're, they're just concepts that really interest me. Um, Actually, I'm I'm very interested to understand about what you mean by you were ready to love again. Because what do you mean by love? What's that mean? Because we we I use the word love for everything. Mm. I love my dog. I love my car. I love oh my, my god, job. my dog! It's my obsession with my dog. <laughs> so, that's, all, that's what she means. She loves again. She loves her. Dog. I loved again. <laughs> I got a dog. Yeah. <laughs> so because you know maybe because I could say to you like if you're ready to love again, maybe you just get a dog. Yeah. And oh, tell me what you meant by that. That's a really good point, actually. Um, well done. You're really going to get something deep out of me here, I think. Um, but that's what I this is all about. That's what Straight Talk's about. Yeah, I didn't think of it like that until you just really pointed it out. I wasn't just ready to love, but I was. I think I was ready to be loved because I, I had a really rough trot in my personal life. I just briefly mentioned, you know, I was a few years deep in a relationship with someone that um, – I found out was a really bad person. Uh, he did some really bad things that I won't ever talk about. Um, even come for, le on, even for le on. no for legal reasons. Yeah, okay, I actually right. can't. Like I'm, yeah, <laughs> not a good human. Um, but the things I can talk about is that he did have this double life, and he was setting. It's actually pretty wild. Um, I was two years deep when I found out, but the other woman was six years with him. So I felt like the other woman even though I didn't know because I, I felt straight away I was more empathetic for her because I thought, wow, like you spent six years setting up this life and you just must think I've flooded in, whereas I still thought I was the only one. But Flat-bellied homewrecker. Mm. Totally. Um, but her and I ended up, uh, you know, we talked it out and we were great with each other. We both left at the same time. But, he, you know, same houses, went, took us to the same Tiffany's, calling our kids the same names, bought the same dogs, Reddish and Ridgebacks like wild, wild things. Um, and off the back of that, it got a bit messy. Um, there were some threats flying around um, and I developed insomnia because I genuinely thought, hey, this guy's pretty unhinged. He knows everything about me. He had, he was, uh, he had hacked into all my emails, my computers, my Instagram, everything that I had. Um, 
And I didn't really realize at the time until I, I started to, I was like, how does he know that? And then I would see, I would change my passwords and then I would see that they'd changed again. So he, he just kept hacking me. Um, and I just developed this crazy idea that he was going to do something to me. Um, so off the back of that, I had a lot of distrust and, um, I just didn't want any guilt. Yeah, a lot of guilt. Yeah, I was disgusted at myself actually, which was the funny thing. I didn't. But tell what for? You didn't do anything wrong. I was so embarrassed. Mm. The embarrassment. Yeah, yeah. The embarrassment ran deep. That um. Because you felt stupid. As a, as a, an intelligent woman, I saw myself as an intelligent woman, and I thought, how did I just fall for that for so many years? And how is there still a part of me that still loves him when I when I found out? Because you don't switch love off, right? I could hate him. And never want to see him again, but it doesn't, it doesn't take away the last two years of what you had. Um, so this is when I went on this like very cliche, going to go find myself and travel the world and see who I am a couple of years. Um, but I didn't want to date for a long time and I would self-sabotage without knowing. And this is something that I've learned from all the stuff that Laura and I have dug into over the years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we speak to so many specialists. Like you're doing that thing again, that thing where. Yeah. yeah. I would date, um very briefly and the second anyone wanted anything i would run a mile H- had anyone want anything anything more serious with me yeah, yeah, more, more commitment oh yeah I, I until the last two years I, i've been a massive commitment phobe but i always blamed everyone else it wasn't me yeah, it was yeah. like oh can you believe I, you know socks and sandals can't do it you see the salmon shirt he wore can't do it, it red flag but they weren't they were like <laughs> it was me just trying to find anything i could it was the classic example of any time a guy wasn't very interested or actually wasn't really available emotionally. I wanted them like, so bad. That's the guy I'm in love with. And any like <laughs> nice, normal guy that was like, hey, <laughs> you seem awesome. I'm stable. Let's date. Brit was like, I just don't feel anything. He's so boring. I only ever was like, attracted. Yeah. I was only attracted was like, to people pat- I knew I couldn't have. 100%. <laughs> and that was something, that was my issue. That was not these poor men's issue that I was dealing with. It was now, um, Brit only dates men who are in other countries. So it's it's still continued. It's, it's just now continued by yeah. um, location. They're physically not here. Well, yeah. They're emotionally Distance. very available. Well, I have, I've had two relationships. I'm in a relationship now with, a, you know, someone I love. His name is Ben, but yeah. he lives in Scotland. I meant. Yeah. But he's the reason I'm in the relationship, not the reason, Ben, sorry, block your ears, that came out wrong. My last relationships are still long distance because I'm so used to being on my own. And, and you know, I really took my, my dad's advice of not this is why I wanted you to set yourself up, but also like, he wanted to put me in a position and he used this example when I was young, when I was 18. And my parents are in 45 years married in love. Like they have a great relationship. Um, but he always said, he's, we're just the apple of his eye. I get emotional thinking about my dad. Like I could cry. But he always said, I, if you're in a, a marriage or a relationship that goes wrong, I need to know and I want you to know that you can leave and you don't get stuck because you can't. You don't get stuck because you don't have an income or a job or in control. He's like, I just want to make sure you're in a position that you could walk out that door and be okay. And that's all he really wanted to instill in my sister and I. And he did that. Um, went off track there because we were talking about love. But um, <laughs> love you, Dad. But um, I just, yeah, I, I finally realised that um, I wanted to – I just wanted someone to look after me for a minute <laughs> and I, that sounds really selfish but I, I spent my whole life on my own basically and looking after everyone else and I was like, I'm exhausted. Like I just want someone to pat my head and tell me I'm okay. Like <laughs> it's going to be okay. <laughs> and it sounds so childlike 
But sometimes but we're you, all, we got plenty of child in us, all of us. Yeah, it does sound childlike, but sometimes you want someone to just say it's going to be all right, and, and I'm here, and I was ready for someone to say I'm here for you. Because you know we don't have to be grown up, you know. Like we keep keep getting told we're grown ups, right? Yeah. We have to act a certain way. But we have a lot of child still in us, and there mm. is nothing wrong with wanting to just get a pat on the head and be told you're going to be okay. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, no. especially, especially when you need it. And you were talking about vulnerability, vulnerability before, but that's the sort of thing we have to accept about ourselves. Yeah, I'm no psychologist. I'm and by the way, I'm not not great at all this sort of stuff, relationship stuff. But um, but I do know I have learned that after a long, long time and lots of mistakes mm. that you have to be prepared to accept your vulnerability. Mm. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no point being like the tough guy in my case, walking through doors and stuff like that. Never think I'm ever going to need any help. Well, yeah. It makes you lonely. Is what it, it makes you. Well, you'll end up you being on your, on your own. own. That doesn't Alone mean you're lonely, is not though. lonely though. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say because there's a big difference. Yeah, and sometimes it's okay to be on your own. Like j- just in terms of your your case, Britt. Like, um, oh, I what, love being alone. Well, I was going to say what's very interesting about what you just said. Mm. I don't see any issue with having a, a relationship where the the dude in your case is living in Scotland mm. and you don't live in the same house. Mm. You live distance from each other but you meet I don't know whatever however many times you talk however many times you mm. text whatever it is that type of relationship that suits some people yeah 100%. and I don't think there's anything wrong with that you yeah. don't have to be like mum and dad like you don't have to be like the the uh you know the the, the setup that we've all got used to as growing up as kids mm. in most cases not in totally. your case but in her case yeah um but then on the flip side there's people like you who find that relationship where you can I presume you live on the same roof, your husband. <laughs> here. So where you live together and, you know, you raise kids together, you're sort of in each other's lives a lot more. There's a lot to be said about, though. I, I think we need to challenge the traditional forms of a relationship. And mm. I think we're at a period in our out in time where that is being right now is being challenged. Well, I definitely think it's a learned character trait as well that we have. Um, I wasn't always like that. I was in a relationship for eight years and we were we lived together. We had a house together. And when we broke up in the early days, I didn't want to be alone because I never had. But then when I made the choice and I, I learned to love it, I love, I, I'm not a lonely person. Um, I love being on my own. I could not speak to someone. Now, this is crazy because my job is speaking, radio, podcasting, movie, entertainment, everything. I could not speak to someone for a week and be fine. I could just speak to my dog for a week. I am quite introverted for an extrovert. Um, the, the world perceives me as an extrovert, but yeah, I, I don't ever get lonely to be honest. Um, I can get what I need from my dog or from one interaction or coming to work with Laura and we have a chat. I, that's enough for me. I, I get depleted when I spend more time with people, whereas some people fill their cup with people. Does that mean, um, from your point of view that when you are in the public gaze, it's more of a, of a performance? No, because I love it. It's not a performance at all. I am that person. It's, for that time. Yeah, I'm that person for that time. But when I'm – and actually I've heard a lot of people in the industry speak like that. Um, I remember Robin Williams. I don't know – I love him. I don't know why he comes to mind, but he was very much like that. And he was the opposite person at home. And we know that he wasn't actually an overly happy person even though he perceived himself like that. But I'm, I don't fake anything. When I'm – I'll be the well, life no, of the no, party. No, 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 oh, no. sorry. No, no, that's no, okay. You, yeah. I mean, that's one way you could look at it. But yeah. no, I don't mean faking, but you know it needs to be done. Like oh, Rob yes. Williams. And I'm performing. That's what they're looking for. That's my audience. So I get paid for. Yeah. And I'm going to speak to my audience with respect mm. and give them what they expect. Well, I think the thing is I thrive off – we only speak to people 
really that we're genuinely interested in. And yeah. I thrive off that. If I have a genuine curiosity on something, I'm, I'm going to be there. And I love to entertain and make people laugh. So when I'm on, I'm on. Um, but, man, when I'm off. But I also think it's a reflection of the fact that because we do work in media and we are on all the time in terms of our work, that sometimes it t- it takes a lot of you, like even as an, a person who is extroverted, it takes all of that. that. Um, and so I think that, you know, I, I get to the end of my Mondays where we do podcasting all day, then radio all day. I can't speak. I'm mute because there's nothing left in the tank to talk yep. about, you know, and that can be hard for the people that you then have to go home to, hard for your partner or your kids or you know, at the moment, um, well, at the moment, I'm I'm doing training. You guys, you'll know about it. Um, you can, I can talk, talk about, about that because it'll be well, out. Yeah. I'm doing Dancing with the Stars, but I'm yeah. I'm training on a Monday night. I can't even talk to my dance partner at all. I don't have. There's no words left You're in my cooked. body, and I think that that is just a reflection from the work that we do requires us to be on. And that's amazing because when we're on, we're on. But then when you're off, yeah. you're like a zombie. Yeah, well, that that that's an important realization. Know when to when to act that way in other words when to turn off and to give yourself a time to recharge what do you consider love to be either receiving or giving it doesn't have to be two ways Mm. and i don't mean that in a way that you're being used up but do you is there an expectation that the level of love that you you want to give you expect to get back love for me i think equates to the people I'm willing to give my time to because I think time is a commodity that is priceless and we don't ever get back. Um, And when you're running businesses and living busy lives, who you choose to give your energy and time to when you don't have much is love, who you choose to go above and beyond for. I have a a very small group of people in my life. I'm not one of those people with a million friends. Um, I could count them on two hands but I'll give the shirt off my back to those people. Um, They're they're the people that I know. I could call at 4 a.m. in the morning and ask for help Um, and conversely they're the people that I know would call me and say, um, hey, I need help and I don't say what have you done. I just say what do you need because the reason they've asked for help doesn't matter and I think that's that's a a real sign of love is, it's irrelevant what they've done. You just, they, they've asked you for help. What is it that I can do? And then we'll we'll deal with the reason later. Wow. I've actually had to bail a friend out of prison before. <laughs> I don't think I've told you this. I had a friend, and it was just a, it was a speeding thing. It wasn't bad, but he called me at three in the morning one once. I woke up so disoriented, answered the phone, and he said, "I need you to pick me up from." bail me out of a jail three hours away. I had to be at hospital not that long away. Um, three hours away. And I was like, okay, cool. Are you ready if I leave now? And I just remember thinking, it doesn't matter what they've done right now. I'll, I'll go and get him and then we'll deal with it later. But I think, I think that's love, who you choose to give your energy and time to. And it doesn't, have, it doesn't equate to being in love. But no. I mean, it just means you love someone. Like you can, as, you, as I said, you can love your kids, your mm. dog, your mother, your father, your friends, the priest or the church, if mm. you're part of a church community or, or in my case, uh, people who work with me. Um, you can have a sense of love. There's lots of different degrees, mm. but it is something that uh, the word unfortunately gets too too often used. But there's there's no rules, mm. and there shouldn't be any rules. And no, and sometimes be, it doesn't make sense. The, the rules are ridiculous, mm. and which is you know the, that's why the Bachelor is a bit of an unusual show for me. But, <laughs> it, but because it's sort of like everyone's expecting it to be your sort of love, like the. the 
the, the, the storybook type love, you know, mm. like you go on the show, you fall in love with somebody, actually, you know, for all the right reasons and, uh, and you live happily ever after. And, uh, touch wood, that's how it happens for you. And uh, I, I mean, I, I guess you, you probably should say something about your view on this point too. Well, I think, I mean, I feel like it's that, that as well. It could be an assumption from the outset. I think if you look at our relationship and you look at how we met, you would think that it is the story tale love. Um, but it took me a long time to get to that sort of relationship. Um, like I said, my mum was a single mum, three kids. Um, but she un- unknowingly and without sort of like the right tools in her toolkit to do relationships, um, my whole upbringing was modelled really bad relationships. That's That was my exposure to what love was. Love was the way you felt about someone. It was chemistry. It was toxic. It was um, really volatile. And that permeated all of my previous relationships. I thought love was a feeling. I thought it was, didn't matter what happened. If you love someone enough, you would overcome anything. Um, and that is how I always showed up in my relationships. I stayed far too long with people who cheated or, or, um, treated me poorly. And, um, it was meeting my partner who is completely not the person I ever would have chosen in the real world. Like I would have met Matt and thought he's too nice. He's too available. And he's, he's made too it too stable. easy. I would have been, I would have been the, the version of when I say Brit would meet someone and say, Oh, I don't have any chemistry. I think had I met Matt under a different circumstance, I would have had that feeling towards him. Um, but also now that I, I break it down, I think about it, there was the competition element of being on The Bachelor. There was still something that made it volatile in our initial meeting. Um, and then also afterwards, it was the volatility didn't come from the relationship, but it came from the public scrutiny. It came from my feelings about myself after the show. So that still added that drama that I had been addicted to. And then over the next 12 months, it was Matt modeling what a great relationship was for me that really changed my perspective on what love is. And I now understand that it's not a feeling anymore. It's not about the chemistry that we have or the attraction that we have for each other, even though that exists. For me, it's about the safety that I feel in my relationship. It's about the stability that we have. It's about him showing up for our children in a way that I didn't experience as a kid. Um, my entire understanding of what love is has been shaped from my now relationship. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for him for that because he was patient with me as well. You also buzz. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. 
sounds like you tried to understand you. Because yeah, I mean, I think love is a lot about understanding the other person. I mean, it, it, what do they want, and uh, and them understanding you back, and what can you provide, by, which is not necessarily what they want. So, like, it, it's how do I sort of understand everything about you, and how do you understand everything about me, and then can we meet each other's expectations? Totally. And uh, and sometimes you have to compromise on things, mm. and it's about compromising all the time, to continual compromise. Yeah, and about like I mean, I feel like for us, one of the big things is we um, and we work in the same industries. We're, we're both very driven people, but um, we're not competing for the same stuff. Like I feel like he's my biggest cheerleader, and we talk about it all the time. I think for some relationships, it could be threatening to a partner, especially in a heterosexual relationship, to the male partner to have um, to be married to someone who is so business orientated and is so. Um, um, you know, like you can we say live, it's successful. Well, yeah, I, 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 I hate without it. jealousy, without yeah. any jealousy or, or or envy. And and like at the moment, you know, he's the one who's doing the lion's share of the parenting with our children. He's he's doing so much with our kids, and and I hate the the term like he's so hands on because he's not hands on. He literally is doing everything, and I'm the one going to work. Um, and I think that sometimes in some relationships that could breed resentment because of the traditional norms that we've been led to believe, which is you know, mum does. 70%, dad does 30%. And that is the case for a lot of households. Whereas in our family, especially at the moment, Matt does 80% of the parenting and I'm doing 20%. Um, and that's just because of our work dynamics. And then I know in the future that will shift again. Do you have to compensate for that? I mean, in, in, t- in terms of relationship, like do you... Just some- have more sex. Then you sound too tired. Yeah. <laughs> i got to keep the man happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, um... No, I think we compensate in different ways in terms of um, our working relationships are very fluid. So, you know, I might go through a real peak of quite intense work and then I'll step back into the more the majority parenting load and he will have a peak. So he, for example, was hosting a TV series pre-COVID. Then that got got axed because it was a travel series. And so then my work kind of, you know, podcasting grew during COVID. And so we've just had these ebbs and flows between whose work is the priority and who is taking parenting priority. And so far we've been able to navigate it pretty well, but I'm sure there'll be a time where both things will be flaring at the same time and then we'll have to come up with a solution. So do you think you would, therefore you've, you and, or, and him have both got to be good managers? And I, I guess communication is like really critical. Like, yeah, he manages me. So yeah. I'm chaos personified. I'm I'm the sort of person who has schedules, tries to keep everything in my head, doesn't really know how to use a calendar. And he's the one who kind of manages me and my chaoticness, which I'm sure is an unfair load that he has to carry from time to time. But he's very, a, he's super creative, but he's also quite a personality type. So he's quite good at being organized. And I am so far the other end of the spectrum um, that... I don't know. I think sometimes he finds it endearing and sometimes he finds it infuriating in equal measures. What happens when you have an argument? Like, <laughs> what do you do? Like, we don't talk for three days. <laughs> no, we don't. No, we, we don't hold grudges. We're so quick to resolve stuff. Actually, the opposite. We um, The only thing that we ever really argue about is tone. So, like, if someone says something in, like, a in a – you know, t- with a tone that's not yeah, nice because yeah, yeah, we yeah. don't we don't yell at each other, we don't swear at each other, we don't like the things that we get angry at each other about would be would be you know me saying at the park like I thought you were doing this, but it's said with a tone. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's offensive. And when you actually break down what the argument's about, they're always so fucking dumb. Totally. So as things usually we get to you know the twenty minute mark after being a bit panicky with each other, and we'd be like, 
okay, this is what we're actually arguing about. And it doesn't, it's irrelevant. But very rarely at the moment do we have big blowups about anything that's substantial. So I feel very grateful for that. It's always about stupid shit. And it usually comes off the back of being tired or overworked or, you know, there's usually a deficit somewhere else and it, and it's being communicated in a very unproductive way. It's also when you get, um, not you, but in relationships, when you're tired all the time and you're, and you're stressed, you pick fights oh, about the course. most ridiculous totally things. Yeah, you just – and it's not After their fault. 6 p.m. Also, I think it's when you project – I think where arguments often stem from as well and in that sort of case, and for us, it's like when you project how you think the other person's supposed to respond to something. Yeah. So if they respond in a way <laughs> that doesn't align with the person you want them to be, then you feel annoyed at them because you're like, oh, well, I expected this. But you, you always have to be very aware and self-aware that, like, they're not an extension of you. They are a very autonomous person who is their own person and they're allowed to have – thoughts, ideas, and reactions to things that aren't in alignment with the way that you think. And, um, and that's definitely like knowing that and knowing that, that Matt doesn't, you know, he's not doing things to purposely make me angry or make me upset. Like he's well, would he? exactly. It doesn't help him. And he truly is such a bloody stand up husband. Um, so sometimes when I'm feeling frustrated at him for whatever he's done, breaking it down and going, Oh, the problem's me. <laughs> it's not him. Hi, it's I'm me. I'm the problem. It's me. And that's good self-awareness, you know, but it's come from many, many years. And also I think like the biggest gift of doing Life Uncut is just how much we've learned about relationships over mm. the years. It's been four years of learning about what constitutes a good relationship. It's four years of learning about like how to better communicate. And, you know, we've been able to create the content, but it, it's also meant that we've had to do the work on ourselves. And I really think that it's for both of us has been so beneficial with how we navigate our relationships. So let's talk more about life and kind of, cause I actually, I want to, I want to, I want to jump into that. Why did you decide to do that podcast? Why did you call it Life Uncut? And then why, did, why was it the two of you? <laughs> so we met post-Bachelor. What happened was is Yeah, because on- we were on different seasons. Yeah. Have we made that clear to everyone? Yeah, we yeah. – Brittany has never <laughs> made out with Matt my Matt did not dump mother. me. I did not. <laughs> no, um, so Britt was on the season after me and – when I was so when it was my season, um, Alex Nation, she was on she's she was the final girl who was on the season before me on Richie's season, which was season five, I think. When she found out or when she started to see the edit and realized I was the girl at the end, and she also saw the social media that I was copying and also the way that the edit was being portrayed. Because the other thing that happens on The Bachelor, if you're the final girl. So the person that he chooses at the end, there will always be some jeopardy that's thrown into your storyline. So you don't get the 100% hero edit. There's always, you're a nice, 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 nice. Something will happen that will make, throw the public off the scent of you. So it might be that you've done something or said something that's a little bit controversial, not too controversial, but controversial enough to get a few people offside. And then you're nice, nice, nice again, because then you win back the audience. If you're number two girl, you're just the golden horse the whole race. Like people want you to be amazing the whole time. So it then becomes when you have that little bit of jeopardy in your storyline, the public turn on you. Oh, we've finally seen the real you. It's that sort of narrative switch. So Alex Nation messaged me during my season and she was like, I know it's you at the end. I want you to know that you're going to be okay. I know you think that people aren't in support of you right now, but the title change again and people will get behind you. And, and it was a really kind of nice reassurance from someone who had walked the path before that things were going to be okay. 
And so when I watched Brit's season and I saw the same thing happening to Brit, I reached out to her and I was like doing my, you know, passing of the baton basically. And I was like, hey, here's my number. I understand what's happening. I know you think that everyone hates you. They don't. The mob moves on. And, you know, in a couple of weeks time, it'll all be fine. And I was like, call me if you need anything. She called me within 30 30 seconds. seconds. (laughs) I didn't know her. I was like, oh, my God, how did you know? I'm in my room crying. I haven't left for like five days. I was like, I bet you you're in tears. I bet you you haven't (laughs) left your house. And I, I, I would put money on it that you're reading every single comment. Well, because if you haven't been in the public eye before, which we had not, we were nobody's, I don't even think I have an Instagram, and then all of a sudden you are copying so much trolling and, and hate. It, it's We're six years, five years deep, you know, that was that long ago and it still affects us now when you read some trolling and hate. So back then when it feels like the whole country is against you, it's really tough. So we we sort of became friends to fast forward, um, but not great friends. We just were like more acquaint- acquaintances. Yeah, yeah, when I'm in Sydney, because I didn't live in Sydney, I was in a country town, um, when I'm in Sydney – we'll get breakfast. We'll go for a walk. So I think we'd only hung out three times for like brekkie walks in Bondi. And I'd always known I wanted to start a podcast, um, always, but I didn't ever know how or who with or what I would do. I just knew that I, I wanted to have a bigger platform to help people. And then it was one day of a breakfast that we were sharing our traumatic stories. Well, we were talking about our relationships over yeah. breakfast. Britt was telling me about her dating the guy who had a multiple, like multiple relationships. The sociopath. Yeah. The sociopath. I was telling her about a guy I dated who was a sex addict and <laughs> did, I didn't know at the time. And so we had very similar stories. Like real, for real, sex addict. Yeah, like undiagnosed, but I mean, he yeah, was yeah. cheating on me with with thirty multiple women. Yeah. Um, he cheated 30. On, on his ex wife with multiple women, so like wow. it was um, it was very obvious that there was sex addict or just like wanker. Some like <laughs> real deep seated issues there. Um, many visits to couples therapy and psychologists, you know, didn't really help. But basically, we were like we had some very similar things that happened in our past relationships, and I had also wanted to do a podcast, but hadn't really thought about who kind of knew what I liked to talk about. Like I was always really interested in relationships and was always the advice giver, but could never take the advice. Like was so good at giving yeah. advice to my friends and telling them how they should navigate relationships, and was so monumentally messed up in my own. Um, but then we had this breakfast this one day and we had such a great chat and Britt messaged me afterwards and she was like, I think you're we the should one. do a podcast together. <laughs> I think we should do this. Marry me. And yeah, I was like, this is, because we we also didn't know each other well, but we had a really great chemistry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We bounced um, off each other so well. We had so much fun away, together. Yeah. Um, but at the time I was eight months pregnant and the idea of starting another business on top of the business I already had, I was like, all right, how am I going to do this? But Brit was incredibly persistent and she was like, I we just, like she was like, we need to lay an episode. Neither of us had, knew how to podcast. We didn't know how to record. We literally the, Googled. The broadcasters didn't exist then, not in this format. So we like had the big garage band and everything. Anyway, Brit was like, we need to lay an episode down before. You have a she, baby. Yeah. She didn't say this in so many words, but I know now what she was thinking. She was like, we have to get this down part before she has this baby or it's never going to get off the ground. And so we got two episodes down before Marley was born. And then I, they were released, and so I was like signed off and had to do it. So we were, it was lost and loaded. <laughs> I lost you down. So then we launched Life Uncut, pretty much. Um, yeah, like through. How did you work out the format? Like, like you know, trial and error. 
yeah, just just go for it. We we the early days were we chopped and changed mm. a lot because we well you know what we actually didn't think anyone was going to listen. When you say you can't open another business, I didn't look at it like a business. We didn't earn a dollar from that for yeah, twelve months. Yeah. It was a real passion project, and I think that's the reason it's successful four years later is because it was passion and, and we loved it. But it um. We still tweak now. We still want to listen to what the listeners want and the audience want. And if and if we think we need to change something, we'll do it 100%. But we both, I mean, the thing that I love about Brit and, and working together, I'm very much in terms of business, like I'm not a, procrastinate, a procrastinator. I'm not someone who needs to get a product perfect before going to market. And if I was that person, I never, ever would have gotten Tony May off the ground. Um, it is my, my jewelry business is a completely different business 15 years later to what it was when I started in terms of aesthetic design, everything. And it's gotten incredibly like, uh, you wouldn't even recognize the two if you were to compare, but the same with podcasting. I think so many people procrastinate because they think they need to have a product perfect before they launch it. And then they never, ever do anything. And the thing that I love about Brit is we're both so, um, you know what, that is good enough. Let's get it out there and let's make it better. And that was how we approached the first episode. The first episode oh, you die, Mark. Don't ever was listen. trash. It was like we recorded it in a tunnel, but we tried to re-record it on better audio, but the content wasn't as good because it wasn't, it wasn't new. It wasn't authentic. We were just kind of rerunning the things we'd already said. Trying to make the same jokes. It just it didn't like... feel real. So we were like, you know what, whatever. We'll put out a disclaimer saying that we didn't know what we were doing and the, we'll, the audio will be better next week. And um, it was better next week. Um, And then it's just gotten better and better ever since. So we've always worked on building and making the product better. So how many of you guys got through now? Oh, 400. 400. 400, 400, yeah. It's funny because I remember when it started, we were like, no one's going to listen to this. I remember we released the first episode. We literally pressed release, forgot about it. Didn't even, like, like, it's not even going to chart. And then the next day I got a message saying, congrats on number one. And I was like, number one what? They're like, podcast. I was like, what do you mean? They're like, what do you mean? What do I mean? What do you mean? It's like, they're like, you're number one in the country. And we were like, what? what? Who's listening to this trash? We were like, what? <laughs> and I called her and I was like, did you know? She's like, what the fuck? I was like, we really need to fix that audio before next week. This is we terrible. Had, so then we were, we had no choice then to roll. We were like, oh shit, this is a thing. Yeah. Like people are listening. We, could, we better keep going. And then we, four years later, we kept going. Yeah. And, and also on that, I mean, the big thing with like, once we once we knew that the content was stuff that people you know, and it wasn't just stuff that people were listening to because they were having fun like we were learning and people were learning at the same time um and we were doing stuff that we were so interested in and I think the big driver for us it was that we absolutely loved creating this podcast we loved connecting with the listeners that we had and so when Brit says you know we didn't make a dollar for the first year we were truly just doing it weekly twice weekly for the love of it and I think that that really rang true for so many people who were listening to it. They knew that it was just these two chicks giving it a crack rather than this perfectly polished production that the intention behind it was to be a revenue maker. Oh, like I would come to the recordings in my scrubs after a 12-hour night shift and Laura would have a baby strapped to a breastfeeding and that's how yeah. we would do it. And I think that the relatability in that is really what helped gain an audience because we really were just two really normal, relatable people who didn't talk and shit. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but, but now you, you're not doing that. Yeah. You're not yeah. coming in that way. Now it's run as a, in a professional sense. You're on a, you're I on mean, a network. You're part of a network. Give or take. ARN or something, aren't you? Like yeah, the- we, we are. So we, we work with ARN, but we, ARN are our, like our mother agency, yeah. um, who we also do radio, radio with. But in terms of us creating, 
it's just it's Brittany, show. myself, and Keisha. The three of us are the show. Erin um, wouldn't know what episodes were coming out. Yeah. They don't, not that they don't care, but they know that we run ourselves. Yeah. yeah. And um, so when it comes to, you know, I guess like a lot of people who once they get to a big scale, they sell out in terms of, you know, handing over production, handing over, because it makes your life easier, right? When you have a whole team doing it. Yep. But we have always been so fiercely protective of not just our community, but also of our content um, that we want to, I, I still edit. So Keisha edits the episodes and I re-edit every episode that goes out because I want to make sure that what, when we're the mouthpiece for something that I'm so proud of what's going out every single week. Um, and that's been the case since day dot. Yeah, but do, do you think that, look, I've been through all control, the various processes. Well, issues, I've been yes. through all the processes because <laughs> I was with Southern Cross Hysteria for a while. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and they uh, produced everything for me. Um, and, uh, and, and also I found advertising uh, that other sort of stuff, yeah, revenue okay, type cool. thing, which is good. Um, but I ended up buying them out because, uh, I sort of we sort of outgrew them, and now I have my own team, and mm. I feel much more comfortable comfortable with my own team because I I like you. I like to be able to control what's going mm. on. I don't want someone to say, "Well, Mike, this is your guest," f- because we're doing a radio thing with this particular organization. Totally, and that's yeah. what's always been so important to us. We don't um, because we've been able to con- maintain autonomy over all of our content, um, even though we work alongside and Aaron are incredibly supportive of us they don't they don't change our content we we have absolute right of say over everything and that has been the most important thing to us because that's what makes it authentic laura you run a successful jewelry business called tony mate you've got kids you've got a relationship but it's also you've got you know you've got to manage relationships and then you're doing the podcast and the radio i mean how do you do all this stuff um i think Firstly, I want to say, because I, I think it sets a really unrealistic. Yeah, I know. Well, it sets a really unrealistic expectation for mums, firstly. Mm, and mm. I'm very, very aware. You know, I often get mums who message me who are like, I'm I'm struggling with two kids and I'm not working and I don't know how you do it. Um, because I think that sometimes you can look in and think it looks so easy. It's really not easy. Um, it's some some weeks are, are incredibly challenging, but I also know that I've kind of done this to myself. So I'm not sitting out here complaining, being like, oh, my life is so hard. I'm so grateful for the opportunities I have at the moment. Um, but I'm also incredibly grateful for the absolutely freaking amazing team I've built around me. And that's the thing with Tony May. So we have um, now in, I mean, in Sydney, we probably have about 10 employees, which is not huge by any means, but a, a globally, we probably have closer to 50 employees now. Um, and I think the big thing is my sister came on board. So after the bachelor happened, um, my sister, she used to run an experiment, experience, experiential, experiential. Market, yeah, experiential marketing company, um, that she had part ownership in that relationship that she had with, um, her business owner had, had basically, they, they just come to a point where it was probably best for them to start to look to do other things. And, um, even though that business was really successful, Alicia wasn't feeling fulfilled in it anymore. And she, when I was in the batch mansion, she took over Tony May for those three months because I was away from my business for three whole months and she helped she's not creative, but she's incredibly business minded. And so after the show, she sat down with me and she was like, look, I want buy-in. Um, can I, what can I do 
to get a portion of the company and um, we can do this together. And she was like, I'll take care of business and you do the creative. And that has been the most incredible business decision I think I've ever made. Sometimes you have to give up a little bit to gain a lot. Um, And she now works full time. She does all the business side and that gave me the opportunity to just focus on the creative. Um, And now I do all the designs, but I don't have to do the day-to-day running of the business or the staff logistics or any of the other stuff that takes so much time. And it's allowed me to not work in the business, but work on the business. And I think that that is the same for pretty much every single business that I work on. With Life Uncut, I used to be doing all the editing. We used to be so bogged down in the sort of semantics of the content, whereas now then we employed Keisha and she is incredible. And Keisha does the the lion's share of that work now, whereas I just have to do the final finessing of it. So I think like for me, the, the most, the only reason why I'm able to do all the things that I do is because I have incredible people around me who make it possible and they make it look like it's so easy um, for me. And it's because they all work so incredibly hard to make it happen. It seems like to me that you've laid out on the table all the pieces and then you've sort of arranged them in in a very structured way. You say you're creative, but I also think you're very structured because you've got um, experts or people anyway that you trust looking after various parts of your life. You've got your husband looking yeah. after the kids. Yeah. You've got your sister I'm a delegator looking. now, baby. Well, you saw that. That's how it's coming <laughs> She's across. the puppeteer. She's but like, I don't know. Well, going. I didn't want to say puppeteer, but because like, <laughs> this is a bit manipulative. But, but it doesn't matter. It is important to manipulate the situation to the best of everybody, not just yourself. Yeah, but I think also when you are somebody who is has an, not just running small businesses, but when you are an entrepreneur, you you can't run the businesses. You can't yeah. be in everything. You are the person that powers it from behind. And, you know, and, and not to be like, I'm the visionary of Tony May, but like, I am the creative, I'm the creative director of Tony May. The way Tony May looks and feels and the way people wear it and they respond to the brand story, that is all me. But And how you respond engine, to markets. You've yeah. got to respond to changes because totally. you said that Tony May today is a lot different than what it was when you first kicked it off. Totally. That's all, all all about you responding and refining and cha- making sure you meet the market. Absolutely. So you become a scientist around the science of understanding where the market's going, and predictor. I, yeah, and also like, I mean, I've been in retail for 16 years now. So like I understand how retail has shifted, how it's gone from being very much a um, – you know, you walk in and purchase in store to being an online experience and to being a social media experience. Like I've seen those developments. And I think that for me, the thing that's so incredible between Life Uncut, Tony May, my media work is that all of those businesses work as an ecosystem as well. Life Uncut in ways helps Tony May because of profile building. I get to wear my jewelry, people see me wear it. And then that kind of helps to build that part of my business. And it all just works as this beautiful little ecosystem together. Um, But in, in order for that to happen, you've got to have the right people in place to be the engine of each of those companies. Do you, do you sit back admiring her? Oh, she's an uh, absolute boss woman. She yeah. thinks yeah, I'm yeah. insane. But then, like, you know, we wrote the book last year and it's, there's always extra things to do that but kind I, of just fall into place and you've got to kind of arrange your life around these new Oh, yeah, we're, we're suckers for saying yes and then we'll ask me It's good to say yes and, and then backfill. So, okay, we've said yes, we've got to do it now. Yeah. And then say we'll do it. Yeah, it's important to note, though, for anyone listening at home that, that things that, you know, we do go and do all this extra stuff. Life uncut, the only reason we were able to do that and take it on at the time, because I was obviously doing other work too, is because it was a medium that we could do at midnight if we wanted to. Totally. We didn't have to have a nine to five store that we had to go to. We could do it at 6am. We could do it whenever we wanted. That's the reason 
literally that's the reason we were here today. Like a side hustle. And we yeah. just when when an opportunity comes up, if I've got a, a show that I, I want to go and film or a movie, and or Laura's got a show she's filming, we just work around it. We're like, cool, that schedule's out the window because you've you've got your show. Let's do it next week at midnight. Like, there's always a way around something, and and we definitely have had times where we've had to bend over for the other person, but that's compromise. That's life, and that's how I think that's why we're such good friends and that, that's a really good point you just made then because uh, a lot of people say oh well, I want to be I want to do a podcast so I think I need to do a podcast I'd love to do a podcast because mm. they want to be like you guys I want to I want to be an entertainer I want to be creative mm. I want to talk to an audience build an audience but what they don't realize is pe- people like you had your jobs or your businesses mm. which then you could do the thing on the side and as the thing on the side became bigger and bigger and bigger it took over your jobs or totally. alternatively got um, you know equally equal amount of time mm. And I think that process takes a long time too. It doesn't happen in, in your case, it might have happened in a year or two, but most cases it takes years. Well, I did two years. I, I worked COVID in emergency. Um, like I I worked the whole of COVID because yeah. we were short. The hospital staff needed people, um, which wasn't that long ago. So it's only probably the last two years I'd say where I gave up that life because I didn't, I also, it was it's a real stress when you have had an income that's guaranteed every week, you know what you're going to get. Totally. To go into the something risk. where we're like, what if we don't earn any money? Totally. Because we weren't earning money. But um, it got to the point where it was so big that we didn't have a choice anymore and we neither of us were sleeping. We weren't. And that sounds dramatic, but it's not because I would finish 12-hour shift and then I'd have to start a business day for life. I was the business person. So then I would start that and it got and that wasn't paid. And I think people people think you can get into podcasting and it's so easy. You get behind a mic, you talk some shit. You, you don't prep. You, you just don't prep. Rock up, you, like, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's where people go wrong is that they they don't realize that it's a it's a full time job, and it's very important that you think about what you're doing and the it's it's a it's a career now. And where's the money coming from too? Because there's uh, you go do a podcast, you got to earn money out of it. Totally. Right? There's a model. Mm. There's lots of different models in podcasting, but you've got to make sure you earn the quit out of it. And if you're not, you got to you got to do it as a, a side hustle. And as you say, you can end up working 20 hours a day. I, in the first 12, 14 months, and I remember I called Laura, we earned we, $2,500 each and I called her and I said, we just got a $5,000 advertiser. Like, and we're like, woo! Two and a half grand over, yeah, 14 months. But we just still do it. But we, we loved it. And I think the big thing is, we're such good friends that we got to go and do something as friends. (laughs) And I had just been thrown into this new experience of being a mum, and I wasn't seeing many people and I was only really working and being a mum. And so it was my opportunity to have adult conversations. Like I absolutely like just loved our moments, even if they're in the middle of the night of being able to sit down and talk about something. Cause I felt like I was still learning, felt like I was not just, you know, learning about being a mom, I was also still doing something else that made me feel really interested. But one of the big things about it, I think is that, and talking just about business in general is I think it's successes are so obvious. You know, you see them on social media, you can see when people are kicking goals, you see that someone's released a book or they've signed up for a new TV show or their podcast has gone to number one or they won a podcast award. Um, but what you don't see is the years and all of the unpaid hours and all of the sacrifices that go into getting to that point. And I think it makes it seem so easy um, and so easily come by. But I know for us particularly, like Life on Cart was definitely not born overnight, even though that first episode went so well to get to where we are now and to get to sort of the 50 million download mark. It's been this four-year journey, um, which we've had alongside our listeners, which is really incredible. 
Yeah, it, and by the way, most people don't realise you had a head start. You're both on The Bachelor. I had a head start on TV shows of my own. Mm. It took me three years before I earned a dollar. Yeah, uh, on the podcast. On my podcast, three yeah, years. Yeah, see, people and, and, you and, have and, a I a, and I had a head start, a big yeah. head start. Well, it's also the fact that podcasting is years behind in Australia yeah, to yeah. anywhere else in the world. Um, but you've got to be first too. So now yes. it's a crowded territory. And so oh, yeah. if, if you want to kick one off now, you're going to go into a really crowded territory. Um, whereas if you've been like we have been, um, we've been at it for a while now, so we've got a little bit of an advantage over mm. everybody. But if I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to discourage people from uh, doing a podcast because, like you, I think well, the most important thing I get out of doing the mental podcast and this straight talk podcast, which I'm doing with you today, is I'm continually learning from everybody. Mm. Totally. And uh, and you know, you're relatively speaking to me anyway. You're two young people. Um, probably don't have anywhere near the life experience that I have. Um, but I learned something from you guys today mm. and I learned, I learned something from everybody every single time. Mm. Um, and it's it, like, a privilege to it's, sit it's down a big with people deal. and have so, intimate conversations. You know, it's like you, you don't get to do this in your normal life. No, you totally. I mean, meet a stranger I, and talk about things that are important to you. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. It, it is a privilege. Um, like I had um, Angela White on here. Mm. I mean, she, she's a porn star, mm. uh, one of the biggest porn stars on OnlyFans. And uh, I learned a lot from just talking to her about you know, ethics and morality, mm. about being a porn star yeah. and uh, what's it's a business and there's nothing wrong with it. And uh, not that I had a view on it before, but I learned some stuff from her yeah. and, and her views on it. And I think that, uh, yeah, for me it's a, it's a great privilege and I learned ev- I learned every single time about people. Mm. And um, and no matter how old they are, and it's so interesting. Oh my god! It's like so uh, that's the biggest part I get from it. So if you're going to do a podcast, make sure that you understand the reason you're going into it. Mm-hmm. Go in for the right reasons. Totally. Don't go in because you're going to make money. Because you're not. You're not going to make money for a very might. long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and don't go in because you want to be famous. So don't go in because yeah. uh, you want to have a mm. bigger, bigger Instagram account and maybe mm. spread your position, like your your popularity. And you know, and don't and don't go into it if you're sensitive too, because you know, people comment on what they think about you. Totally. Oh, each week people hate one of us. Like we've, uh, we've What done, do you like, do? How do you feel about that? Sometimes it's challenging to feel as though you've been misunderstood. I think that's the biggest one is like if somebody writes a review or something where um, they're, they're upset about something that I've said or they've taken something out of context, I feel I feel upset that I have been misunderstood. Um, but then sometimes they, I haven't been misunderstood. They just don't like what I had to say. And I think it really creates a thick skin. And, I mean, I, we've been in the industry now for um, seven, year, or seven years off the back of being on The Bachelor. And we've been through so many moments of um, where it is challenging that I think every time something happens where it, it just creates a thicker skin, it makes you more resilient. Do you think that's good though? No, uh, not necessarily. But no, it does. I think it does. It is. It, uh, the, when I say thicker skin, I, I mean to people whose opinions you don't know. Yeah, you know, like yeah. I care about what my family and my friends think of me. Yep. Um, I, I deeply care what they think of me, but I don't care what a stranger who hasn't followed you know, who, who maybe heard one thing out of context or read one thing about me and they read a headline and they didn't even listen to where that content came from. Because you think they think you're applying that to them. They, yeah, they've made they've made a decision about who I am because they've read something. And like, for example, Daily Mail ran an article recently about, I told a story on the podcast, which was a funny story about my daughter 
we're in the shower and she afterwards very excitedly told dad that she wanted to have a big fat hairy vagina like her mom. Great, right? Hilarious. Kids are great. You know, and you know what, everyone? It's actually not that big and not that fat and not that hairy, but to a three-year-old, it's all those things. But also, don't let lies get in the way of a good story. Like, absolutely. A bit of embellishment. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Daily Mail writes a big article about how I was talking about my big fat hairy vagina with no context in the headline whatsoever. So, of course, I have people writing to me being like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, why would you? And I'm like, listen to where it came from. Listen to the context. Listen to the humour. And remember, but, it's a Daily Mail. It's written. Totally. It. But but we know now that, like, so many people get their news and get their content from headlines. They don't even read the full article. They And by doing that, you get an impression of someone. You start to think that you like or dislike someone, but that impression has been completely made by by sound bites. I um, just get upset. So I don't take it as much to heart. I get upset because... There is not one bone in our body that wants to offend or upset or bully anyone ever. In yeah. 400 episodes, we have not done that. Our sole purpose is to entertain, make people feel less alone, educate and support women and bring them up. And in 400 plus episodes, that's all we've done. And when you hear people fabricate stories, manipulate a story, uh, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. And the or, feedback or something is taken out of context. It's that's not why to say it's that unintentional. It's, yeah, yeah, it's like sometimes it may not be your intention, but something you say may offend someone because they've lived a different life. Mm. They've walked a different journey. But it is never the intention. Mm. And when you feel like you've dedicated your life to helping people and wanting to help people and then somebody tries to as character assassinate you, it's when it upsets me because I'm like, wow, I've, I've literally dedicated my life to trying to help people and and for you to just try and ch completely change that for whatever reason, to all poppy, um, something going on in their life, that's when it's upsetting. Yeah, that's but, the only time it really bothers me. But it's part me. of the territory too. Absolutely. 100%. And, and, you know, someone wise once said, probably Obama, I don't know, <laughs> um, but like the, you know you're successful when you start to get the hate because when you're small, the people that are, are coming along your journey or everyone that loves you. But when you big in, mm -hmm, when you get big enough to get the hate, it's, you know, you people like you've made it. And I'm not saying we've made it, but when our platform is so large, of course there's going to be people that don't agree with us. So it is 100% part of the territory, yeah. I have a funny story about the Daily Mail. Oh, yeah. Oh, only no, one? No, no, <laughs> about your big well, no doubt they'll be listening. Um, but uh, I was one time went to the gym down, down, down the road here and uh, and I got changed. I thought I'd walk up to the markets that are open up on a Saturday morning up in Potts Point. And um, so I got my gym gear off, walked up, and uh, and I, I bought a drink or something like that. And uh, I was walking down through down through McClay Street, and this dude stand there, and he had a camera, and I and he was looking at me. So and I just I, I, in those days I was boxing a lot, and uh, and I was sort of a bit you know feeling like I, I probably didn't get rid of all my energy in the in the match. Light as a feather. So I went down <laughs> and I said, "What are you doing with the camera, mate?" Because I thought he was looking at me, you know, I thought he was watching me. He said, "Oh no, I'm here. I'm I'm um, I'm photographing um, old architecture." And he said, "In the school here, which is a girls' school, St Vincent's or whichever one it was." He said, "I'm really. It's really interesting for me." And I said, oh, "Okay, cool. I bought it. Okay." And then uh, I went to my car and I, I drove home. Anyway, that day, my sons who look at the Daily Mail sent me a photograph of me, and uh, they sent numerous photographs of me that were in the Daily Mail. But the photograph that really pissed me off was was me walking across the road as I was going across the road towards the guy with a really angry face on myself mm. and my fly was completely undone. <laughs> That's the old architecture. G gave him. Gave him. 
He wasn't lying. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I was. That was a different tower. He's taking photos of. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I was pretty, uh, pretty pissed off. But I, but at the end of the day, like my boys are just laughing at my. I have four sons, and they were just laughing their heads off at it. So. And, and I think you, sometimes you've got to just take the piss out of yourself. You 100%. Know? Don't take yourself too seriously. No. Absolutely. And it comes with the territory. I yeah. think like you, and, and I'm very aware of this in terms of like, you cannot have the privilege of having an, a huge platform of having like an incredible community and audience to to speak to and to, you know, for, for a podcast to market to like, without having the other side of it, which is to have people who don't like you, who you're going to fall outside of their beliefs, ideals and everything else. It's a human want to be liked by everyone, you know, but it's an impossibility. And I think those two things can't coincide. So those two things can't be, um, sorry. Coexistence. Yeah, coexistence. So like to, to have all the amazing things that come with having a platform and the privilege of that, you're always going to have the other side of it and you just have to learn to accept it. Well, I've had a terrific time talking to you guys. Um, really Thank fun. You, we really, I mean, you can tell we talk for a living. You're oh, like, wow, we'll I thought going. that was 40 minutes. No, you're good content. Like, yeah. <laughs> to, oh, yeah, we'll no, give you whatever you need. But you've been wonderful. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Thanks, Mark. ladies. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio production by Jessica Smalley. Production assistants, Jonathan Leondis and Simon McDermott. This is a Mentored Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.